Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about our great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven and calls us on this wonderful earthly pilgrimage. We do not always think about the implications of running a marathon. The reality is a marathon is never completed in a matter of minutes. And even when the marathon is run, there's still hours upon hours of training, interruptions, things that go wrong, distractions, but yet one still has to keep their focus on the ultimate outcome and goal. And we might think that a marathon has nothing to do with Christianity. However, the Apostle Paul uses a marathon two times, at least two times, in his writings. He mentions it explicitly in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, where he compares a Christian life to that very focus of one disciplining their body as a marathon runner, having their orientation, their goal at the outcome and completion of the marathon, like the Christian, Christian life. The Apostle Paul even says to Timothy, he's finished his race, right? When he basically writes uh, his farewell letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, he says that. And the point that the Apostle Paul is making is my whole life, when I think about his trajectory overall, it's been focused and oriented in the goal and glory of Christ much like the marathon runner. Despite setbacks, despite things that get in the way, you can see why Paul uses this as a metaphor for the Christian life, that there's setbacks, there's distractions along the way. We question the loyalty. We, we can question at times who God is. But again, it's always being brought back to the reality of the promise. And so the author of Hebrews, looking at Hebrews 11 once again, I somewhat wonder if the author was going through his own sort of Christian crisis at the context of writing this. I mean, it really seems that the author of Hebrews, at least digging into it, and this is again my theory, but it seems digging into it and making sense of this letter that, that the author himself is thinking, what do we make of Christ Jesus? Well, what do we make of it? We worshiped for centuries this way. Now, now we're doing this? How, how is Christ really providing fulfillment? And so looking through this catalog of saint and saints and how he catalogs them, you know, so often we say heroes of the faith, which I guess isn't necessarily bad to say as I look at, at the catalog. But I think the question is, why are they so heroic? What, what, what makes these individuals so heroic? Because... If you look at the catalog and how he presents them, he recalls enough that you think about their lives and, and you think about their lives in the end and the overall trajectory, but he recalls enough that you can also think of their shortcomings that Scripture records by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and see that they're not always so heroic in terms of their boldness. And so in what sense can we really talk about this this running the race in a sense of these men being heroic, when we think back in their lives and in covenant history and read the official record that God has given us, 
They're not always so heroic. How does this work? How does this fit together? So I want to see first the unlikely precursor where he's talking about Abraham. Sort of does this um, intermediate section where he talks about the heavenly city, which again sort of seems out of place. But when you understand his argument, it very much fits in place. He's uh, not one who's distracted or, or turning away from his point. And then lastly, the ultimate confidence. And so let's begin with the unlikely precursor, basically looking at verses 8 through 12. And it's important that when we jump to the story of Abraham, we think about the context in Hebrews 1, or Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3. Remember that in the context there, we, we got to remember that you have this creation uh, being created by the Word of God, that you have the unseen Word of God producing the effects of what we see. And so the author of Hebrews is, is reminding us there's the Word of God that's upholding everything. We, we use the analogy of the beams on the floors, right? So you don't necessarily see what's holding up the building, but yet you understand that the building is standing. Uh, it's standing because of the strong beams underneath it holding it up. And so when we look at the individuals who are walking by faith, we, we have to go back to verses 1 through 3, putting this in the context, and being assured that God is a God who brings about his redemptive purpose. And his redemptive purpose, he promises to bring the seed of the woman into his rest. So his recreative power will be shown and demonstrated through unlikely individuals. And that's where we ask, well, how unlikely are these individuals? Remember the author of Hebrews, many times we want to jump to, to verse 6, uh, where we talk about, you know, without faith it's impossible to please God, and, and certainly that's true. If we're not taking hold of Christ by faith, and we're not living out of gratitude, and we're not resting in his power, we're not going to please God. And so it's important to understand that by our own works, by our own deliberate intentions, we are not going to please God in our own strength. So Hebrews 11.6, it is calling us to absolute humility before the Lord. Nevertheless, we, we see these men, and when we look at Hebrews 11, we say the heroes of the faith. And we say, but, but how did they become heroes? What's so heroic? How is this coming about? Well, when we think about the promise that God makes, we always got to go back to Genesis 3, verse 15. The joke was always made with Voss that he always went back to the garden. I guess for me, I, the garden's important as it goes to the end of history. But Genesis 3, 15 is that first gospel promise made at the Garden of Eden as Adam and Eve leave. And the Lord promises what seems to be an impossible feat. I mean, really think about it. He's saying on the one hand, he's going to divide the human race, and he's going to take a people who were created in a perfect garden arrangement, who have chosen to rebel against God and kick him out of the holy sanctuary, and he's going to take a people who hate him and reject him, He's going to transform them. They're, they're going to consciously want to live for God. I mean, that's, that's quite a statement, isn't it? 
where God's saying to Satan, I am so powerful, I'm going to transform people in such a way they will want to live for me. And you say, well, that's impossible. That's absolutely impossible. And you would think that God setting up this, this, this stage would make it so he has every deck stacked in his favor. So he has a hometown advantage, so to say. And now we recall Abraham. And Hebrews reminds us who Abraham is. That Abraham is one who's called to leave a comfortable land. And so we have Abraham who's wealthy, his dad's well off, uh, his father is king, that's what Abram means. So his dad is, is actually a pretty prestigious individual by implication of this. In other words, he can have a pretty good earthly life. But he goes out. He leaves. He, he, he denies that family inheritance, the family legacy, and he goes to a place where he doesn't know where he's going, simply by the call of God. In fact, the author of Hebrews says he doesn't even know where he's going. He, he goes out, sojourns to a land of promise, lives his life in light of a land of promise, sojourns in a foreign land, and, and he lives as one in exile, as one who's a nomad going from place to place, setting up campgrounds from tent to tent. And he's looking forward to a different place as he goes about his existence. He does this with Isaac. He does this with Jacob. And so as the Lord does this, you might say, well, this is kind of strange that the Lord would call this to our attention. He wanders around, goes to a land, never receives a land of promise. In fact, in terms of the record, uh, we know that Abram only has a, a stake in the land when, when Sarah, his wife, dies in Genesis 23. That when she dies, uh, he ends up negotiating for a piece of land, uh, basically just a tomb to bury her, but it's, it's not really an inheritance. It's not a household. And so that's the only stake he has in the promised land. And as he, he goes about his his life, and, and lives his life in light of this, where is he orienting himself? He's orienting himself in the heavenly city. The foundations, designer, builder is God. So basically, literally, the craftsman and the divine builder is God himself. And so, as Abraham goes about his, his business, the whole time, he's looking beyond Jerusalem. That's what the author of Hebrews wants us to understand. So I sort of look at this and, and see it as maybe potentially his own catalog where he starts meditating on uh, the characters in the Old Testament and summarizing how God has worked. And so he's pointing out that the very first patriarch where the Hebrew people would have their identity is one who sojourns with his orientation and affections towards the heavenly city. Now, as he does this, we know that, that he journeys, and as he journeys, there's something else that's called to our attention. He, he's looking to the true heavenly city, Psalm 48, inviting us to survey the heavenly city and the beauty of what God has done. But he points out another absurdity of how God works. Because we have his wife, Sarah. Now, Abram, when he's called out of his house, has no children Abram and Sarah are both barren. As we find here, as by faith she receives the power to conceive. So we're, we're starting to understand 
what, what this by faith means and, and pleasing God and walking by this faith, that you're proceeding in the confidence that God is real. You're proceeding in the confidence that, that he's not just some fiction or some story. You're living your life in the confidence that what God promises is a real promise. And so they, they go forward through natural means in the confidence that the Lord will indeed bring about the child. But he tells us the, the problem, doesn't he, in verse 12. It's not only that she had an issue of conceiving and that they couldn't have children, but he's as good as dead. Think about that. He's saying, basically, Abram is so old, one would consider him dead. He's, he's beyond the golden years, if you will. He, he's, not gonna, he's not in a place of rejoining his retirement. He's too old for that. It's, it, his life is done. What he has accomplished has been accomplished, is a presentation. And so he's saying, listen, this man to go on and have an additional legacy, very unlikely. In terms of the human perspective, impossible. As good as dead. The, the language is very strong. He's dead. And yet, we find that from death comes life. So the unlikelihood of this man having a, a, another legacy after he's lived, impossible to human understanding. But in terms of God's purpose and how God's demonstrating what happens, He's teaching us something. The author of Hebrews is inviting us to put something together. Life comes from death. Right here, verse 12, seed form of resurrection concept. Right here, that in order for the Lord to bring about his redemptive promise, death has to happen, then there is life. And so is that reminder. When we think everything is stacked against us, there is no hope, there, there is no getting out of something. The Lord's reminding us, my strength is revealed in weakness. So right here, briefly, cataloging, verses 8 through 12, we think, my goodness, this man was not going to have an additional legacy. This man was not going to go beyond anything. And here we find an incredible story of, of what moves beyond this very reality. But then, it makes sense when we look at this to go, okay, well, it would make more sense to jump basically to verse 17 because now we, we pick up with Abraham again. But there's this section like, like we see in Hebrews where we have verses 13 through 16 where the Lord recalls for us the ultimate city. I don't know about you, but I sort of wonder, like, why doesn't he put this towards the end? This seems almost like a, a conclusion issue or, or maybe at the beginning to, to set the introduction or, or sort of his thesis statement of what he's trying to say. But he doesn't do that. He says he's all died in the faith, not having received the things promised. So you wonder why, why here? Because his information is, is rather significant. I mean, verse 13 is basically telling us that those who have gone before us have had false hopes, right? I mean, wouldn't the world read verse 13 and say, well, this is absurd. Why would you live your whole life for the sake of, of this God who says he's going to do great things and then nothing happens? The author of Hebrews isn't shying away from this. He's saying, listen, they, they all sojourned. They lived by faith. They died in the faith. They didn't receive what was promised. 
So you look at verse 13 and say, well, let's go home. This, this Christian thing is kind of a waste of time, don't you think? I mean, if you're living your life, there's no benefit to it by the sounds of it. But he invites us to go on. He wants us to understand the bigger reality that's before us. And he wants us to understand the but, the conjunction, that they greeted them from afar. They knew they were strangers and exiles. In other words, they, they were those who didn't belong in this earth. This isn't something that was home to them, like Abram leaving his father's house. You're starting to piece together, oh, I see why, why this is put in this section. Now I'm starting to make a connection between Abraham leaving his home, not receiving the promised land, that really what this means is he's looking beyond this age. God sees something bigger than, than what we see. And so they're, they're sojourning. They're living as exiles. They're, they're outcasts in this age. So the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, if you don't have Jerusalem, you don't have Canaan, don't feel like your life is a waste. See, that, that was a unique time in covenant history. A unique time. Most of the time when when sojourners or Christians or uh, those who are found in the same faith as we have, whether they're of the Jewish identity, looking to the Messiah, or as us as Christians looking back to Christ, they're living as exiles. This is the expectation. It's, it's not going to be uh, an easy life necessarily where there is a faith that does not have struggles. That's what the author of Hebrews wants us to know. We're going to have to struggle to keep our affections tuned into heaven, understanding we are exiles. But he goes on to speak of not having the hometown, which is basically when it says uh, homeland, uh, that they are, you know, they speaks to us that they make it a homeland. In other words, this land being their hometown. Uh, when you look at this, this is something that, that we understand. Your hometown is sort of what sets the roots of who you are. I mean, we can say things around here like, well, I'm an old school Montana boy, right? Like, that means something. You, you say that statement, you understand it. You can say, don't hold it against him, he's from Jersey or something like that. Where I grew up, you say, well, they're from Queens or they're from Long Island. And you kind of go, oh, well, you know, I, I kind of understand their mindset now, right? So the hometown is what orients a person and sort of helps us understand a little bit about their thought process and what makes them tick. So the point of the exiles and sojourners, this earth does not make them tick. That's what the Hebrews is saying. Their, their homeland was foreign. They understood they did not grow up in their homeland. They're going to their homeland. So the, the heavenly homeland is what has to inform their affections and identity is what the author of Hebrews is telling us. And he reminds us, says, listen, if Abraham saw this world as his homeland or Mesopotamia, as I mentioned, his father, my father's king, my father's great, basically his father's a well-off man, saying, look, if Abraham's identity and legacy was the first legacy of his upbringing and where he grew up, he could have returned to that land. He just went back there. And if he went back there, he, he would have had a legacy. He would have had a homeland. He, he would have had an easy life. But overall, in the trajectory of Abram, that's not where he sojourned. He struggled, and he oriented himself to a different place. So this leads us now, okay, so we understand he left, could have returned. 
His homeland is oriented to heaven. What does all this mean? Well, verse 16 is where he's driving this home. He wants us to understand they desire a better country. So he's telling us basically what, what Christian contentment means, which isn't something that's necessarily easy. It's a contentment to find our identity in what God has set out for us. A contentment to truly find joy in Christ, no matter the circumstances. That's what the author of Hebrews is reminding us, that they were basically brought to a place where they recognized that their only home was heaven. That's home. And we think back to Abram's life. Is this necessarily what characterizes Abraham all the way through? No, he, he struggled. He didn't fully believe God was a shield and defender. He lied about his wife two times in a foreign land saying, oh, say you're my sister so they don't kill me. That's not trusting God as a shield and defender. But nevertheless, we find in the overall trajectory of Abraham's life, what's the point? He lived his life in light of that heavenly homeland. Overall, he's always living his life in light of the heavenly homeland. The author of Hebrews is saying he had opportunity to apostatize and truly apostatize. He could have turned back, could have gone to his father's house. That would have been easy. But he went and sojourned in light of the promise. We find that this assurance then as to how he lives his life, not receiving the reward in this age, recognizing that the ultimate goal, the ultimate outcome, the ultimate joy in life is living in the context of love and affection and conformity to our God. This is only something that happens in the power of the Spirit, manifesting His recreative power. Now we might say, well, you know, Abraham does have his moral failings. I mean, he's kind of calling to our attention a hypocrite. Uh, do we really want to use Abraham as the example? So this is where it makes sense to me, where you have that interjection where you can have someone be very dismissive. The verses 13 through 16 say, yeah, whatever. Abraham was one, denies his wife being his wife. He's one who's not really living in terms of a homeland. Come on. And then the author of Hebrews goes, okay, let's continue to see what we have recorded for us at the end of Abraham's life and the end of the story. He was tested. So again, this is that mindset of um, seeing what someone is made of. What, what, what is their, what, what's the quality of a metal, the quality of a stone? You, you test it. You, you, you put it uh, to fire to see how it withstands the fire and, and, and what its melting temperature is. That's how you tell the purity of something. So the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, you can say what you want about Abraham, but what do we find by the end of his life? We calls our attention that he was tested and offered up Isaac. So he's jumping right to the implication of what happens. Now remember the story of Isaac. So he's, he's already talked about life coming from death, right? Uh, we've talked about this, verses 8 through 12. She was as good as dead, conceived life. Unlikely that there's going to be a child from this line, but yet we see that the seed of the woman continues through this barren, dead couple that is impossible to have a second legacy. But by the grace of God, 
his promise is shown. So this child, when he is promised, Isaac is a pun in the Hebrew language. It means laughter. So the first time that Isaac is mentioned to Abraham, he laughs. Sarah, she laughs because she's saying, this is impossible. I've lived my whole life, never had a child, and now all of a sudden in these years of barrenness and death, I'm going to have a child? It's impossible. So it was a cynical laughter. Death does not come from life. You think of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, how hard it is for us to learn this lesson. But this is where we go in our minds. So it was a cynical laughter. But this laughter is overturned with a laughter of joy. Because when Isaac finally arrives, there is a joyous laughter of God is one who truly remembers his promise. Right? Isaac stands there as a proof that God's redemptive purpose does not fall flat. So what does Abram do? He takes his child. But the text calls our attention when Genesis 22 repeats, his only son, your only son, your only son. And you have that repeated in the text. We're calling to our attention, oh, this truly is the son of the promise. And as he goes and he takes his son up the mountain, Mount Moriah, Mount Bitterness, uh, the mountain of bitterness, and you can understand looking up the mountain, that no matter what, this is a very deliberate act. You've got to get ready for the sacrifice. You've got to leave early in the morning. And so there's a lot of contemplation and time to think about what's going on. I'm going to have to take the life of my child. I'm going to put this kid on an altar. I'm going to have to slaughter him. And I'm going to have to offer him as a burnt offering. And Isaac, Dad, what's going on? Where, where's the sacrifice? Oh, the Lord will see. The Lord will provide. Don't worry, son. Right? So you can understand the angst going through Abraham, Abraham as he's going up. And the Lord says, through this child, your offspring is going to be named. Think about that. The Lord's saying, we're going to take your son, your only son, that was impossible to enter into history because life came from death. And obviously, God can't do that again, right? And, and so we're going to take this son and we're going to kill this son, slaughter this son on an altar. Think about what modern genre does with, you know, the themes of a chosen child or a special child. What do you do? Well, you protect that child, right? You keep the child close to you. You conceal the child. You hide the child. You keep that child from danger at all costs. You step in the way of that child potentially dying. But that's not how the Lord works. Right here, he's calling to our attention. This impossible child to enter history is the one that is going to be sacrificed. It calls our attention, Genesis 21, when uh, Abram is, uh, Abraham is, is tasked with sending Ishmael away. The Lord says to him, through, your, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. Isaac is the seed of the woman. That's what the Lord's saying explicitly. So nevertheless, we have Abram, Abraham, take him up to the mountain, knowing that the Lord could truly uh, bring back or bring life from death once again. So he's understanding the lesson of barrenness. He's understanding the lesson of sacrifice and, and the significant shift in the naming of the mountain that it goes from the mountain of curse or the mountain of bitterness, the mountain of misery, maybe we could say in English, to the Lord will see is literally uh, Yahweh Yarah is what it means in, in the English, or what it means in the Hebrew. 
but bring it into the English, it's the Lord sees. Now, when we hear that, we think of a creepy God spying on us, but that's not what the Hebrew text is getting at. It's hard to bring this into English, so I'm not criticizing the biblical translators in any way. But the point is that the Lord sees man's fundamental problem. He sees the fundamental problem of sin. It's, it's the intention of that, and he provides another sacrifice. So we, we have to have this as a backdrop to make sense of this. The Lord sees our fundamental problem. He knows how to solve this and resolve this. Now, the author of Hebrews is saying, okay, so we understand the theme of strength coming through weakness. Going on, we have then <clears throat> Abraham figuratively receiving him back from the dead because the Lord sees and provides another sacrifice. Uh, we cannot sacrifice. We cannot uh, propose or bring about the true solution to sin. Only God sees a true solution. Going on then, we have Isaac giving the future blessings of Jacob and Esau. Now, again, there's a whole story here. You could preach a whole sermon in the story here, but very briefly, Jacob, the mama's boy, you know, you, you have the story there of mom protecting him, being the basically the mama bear, keeping that child from harm because the Lord says this child is the one who's a child of promise. Esau is the one that Isaac wants to bless uh, because he's the older son. And ultimately, we see the Lord using deception uh, to bring about the proper blessing that Jacob the younger, the weaker, is blessed. And then we have ultimately even Rebekah having to come to grips with sending him away, going to a foreign land, Jacob himself, going through his own issues that we find at the end called to our attention that what does he do? At the end of his life of scheming and swindling, deceiving, doing everything he can to pursue the promises by his own flesh, by his own strength, that finally after wrestling with God, being blind and weakened, he blesses the younger child with his right hand. He blesses the older child with his left hand. Joseph himself says, no, Dad, you're senile, you're old, you got it backwards. And Jacob says, no. The irony in the text is that the man who cannot see finally sees how God works the trajectory of his life being brought to the place of seeing strength comes through weakness. By the grace of God in the eyes of faith, seeing how the Lord works. He then goes on and say, listen, now if you're going back and saying, well, Joseph tried to correct his dad, so Joseph is one with issues. He says, and what's the trajectory of Joseph's life? How does he end? A man who's been, been betrayed by his brothers? A Christ-like figure being sold into slavery, sent away, a righteous one, wrongfully accused, descending into the depths of prison, emerging triumphant in a high exalted place. Does he pride himself? Does he say, look at my faithfulness? No. Joseph, as he's dying, gives direction. You do not leave my bones in Egypt. This is not my place of residence. You bring my bones to the place where Israel is to rest and reside in the promised land. Now again, the author of Hebrews is taking this to say, Joseph understood the greater identity, the greater purpose of God. The exodus will happen against all hope. And so right here, when we stop at this point, we see the, the very point of what's going on with the author of Hebrews. 
we ask that question, what, what about this running the race? And the Apostle Paul speaking of this marathon. That's what the author of Hebrews is calling to our attention. When we fall into that mindset, which we're prone to do, is God present? Does God care? Is God a shield and defender? Is God able to walk with me through this life? Is God really a shepherd? Is God really the one who ultimately is going to carry out his redemptive promise? The Old Testament saints had it easy. We got a tough, man. We got to wait upon Christ. The author of Hebrews is saying, not so fast. Think about their trajectory. Abraham was promised he left an easy life, not knowing where he's going to go. The Lord delivered. Joseph faced persecution. Jacob rests in his flesh. Isaac wants to manipulate the hand of God and has to come to grips with the fact that he can't. Rebecca has to send her, her loved son away into another land and, and not protect him. You see these realities, and what do the saints have to come to grips with? The promise of Genesis 15 is real. When the Lord says to Abraham, I am your shield and defender, what does the Lord pound into his saints, not only today, but in the past? The Lord will prevail. The Lord is a shield and defender. As we take hold of Christ by faith, and as we walk in the power of that faith, it's not us, it's not our abilities, it's not our greatness. It's the invisible power of the Word of God at work within us. It's the confidence of knowing that even as we stumble, even as we have those setbacks in our Christian life, what do we do? We continue to proceed forward in the confidence that our homeland is not in this world. Our homeland is in heaven. And our homeland is secured in Christ Jesus. The same Christ that the Old Testament saints were looking forward to and embracing by faith under a promise, we take hold of, realizing and seeing not a type of receiving life or from death, as we see with Abraham and Sarah and literally with Isaac, or receiving him back figuratively as a resurrection. We see it in a true resurrection. And how quickly we are like the disciples in the road to Emmaus, saying, and we thought he was the Messiah, but he died. I'm not picking on those disciples. Because if we're honest, all of us struggle with this reality. And that's why the author of Hebrews gives us this catalog of saints and saying, before you romanticize the Old Testament saints, you're looking to the same Christ. You have the same struggles. And as we look at these Old Testament stories, what do we find? The Lord's promises are never null and void. He carries out his redemptive purpose, and he sees through his promise. Let us then proceed in the confidence that while our homeland may not be this world, while our comfort zone may not necessarily be this age, and it's not saying necessarily it's a life of suffering and always misery, but it's certainly not a place of ultimate rest. We're conscious of the curse. Let us keep our affections on the true heavenly homeland as we walk by faith, as those united to Christ, as those empowered by the invisible word of God as he continues to work on us. May we conform to his will and may we find our contentment 
in the pleasure of serving him as our redeemer. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.